0: Welcome to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. This podcast is a collection of sermons and conversations intended to stir up your affections for Jesus. We hope this content helps you know and tell the story of Jesus better. Uh, we're in the middle of a series of the book of Ephesians, so if you have a Bible, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, you're more than welcome to pull out your iPhone or your iPad or whatever tablet you have. Uh, or if you have a print copy, that's incredible too. And so you pull those out. We'll begin in Ephesians chapter 2 uh, verse 1. I um, don't like the doctor's office. I'm not sure there are many of us who do. Uh, all the way from arriving and being coldly greeted by someone who really doesn't care if I'm there or not to the awkwardness of the waiting room, which let's be honest, they're not putting the best furniture in doctor's office waiting rooms. Uh, Usually it looks like MC Hammer's pants threw up on the furniture. It's uncomfortable. And I spend most of the time wondering what's wrong with everybody else in there until I have that moment where I feel a little self-conscious and I'm like, wait a second, what does everybody else in here think is wrong with me? Uh, And then you go to the actual doctor's office where uh, someone I don't know very well touches me. Uh, And that's a little uncomfortable. Uh, I got a thing with like personal space and touch. Um, And then, of course, the thing that I think most of us are the most fearful of when we go to the doctor's office is there actually might be something wrong. Uh, I like to think that I'm a true man. And in being a true man... Uh, I want to just pretend that everything is fine. There is never anything wrong with me. There's no reason for me to be in this doctor's office to begin with. It is uncomfortable. Uh, But of course, now that I'm over 40 and I'm going to the doctor's office more regularly, I realize it's uncomfortable, but necessary Today, as we dive into Ephesians chapter 1, it might be a little uncomfortable, or I mean, Ephesians chapter 2, it might be a little uncomfortable for you in moments, uh, because today is going to be like going to the doctor's office in some ways. But if you will hang in here with me, past the uncomfortableness, we're going to see something unbelievable. Unbelievable. So can you do that with me today? Can you just hang in here with me, past some things that are going to be a little uncomfortable? All right, here we go. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Let's read it together. And you were dead. I told you, right? Going to be uncomfortable. In the trespasses and sins in which you, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience Verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, not through faith. By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, and not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All right, now I need to set some context for you, and this is big picture context. To understand this passage, we actually need to go back to Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. Here's what we learn in Genesis 1 and chapter 2, that we were created in the image of God to know him. The picture of people that Genesis 1, the very beginning of the Bible, paints is that we were handcrafted, made particularly by God in order to reflect His image and in order to function in a relationship with Him. That God had a design and purpose for every single person, including you twofold design that you would be in His image, reflect His glory, and And we would function in a relationship with God. Now, the problem is we don't live in this sort of world and we're not these sorts of people. It doesn't take very long for us to realize something is very wrong. And so Paul, like an expert physician, is about to explain to us what is wrong. So where we start, number one, just the diagnosis. It's a diagnosis of our human condition. This is the first phrase of chapter two, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Trespasses and sins, what does he mean? So churchy words, we find them in the Bible. We use them in a variety of ways. Sometimes we don't slow down to really understand what they mean. To trespass means to just break a boundary or to cross the line. We understand it, use that word, in fact, in terms of property, right? If you're where you're not supposed to be, you are trespassing. But we also use this term and can understand it relationally. People can break boundaries with us, right? People can cross the line. A joke or a comment can cross the line. Gossip can cross the line. A social media post can cross the line. A married man can cross the line with someone who is not his wife. An employee can cross the line or break boundaries at their place of work. And anything that breaks the boundary of our relationship with God is a trespass. It's crossing the line with our relationship with God. And then the second word is sin, which just means to miss the mark or to fall short. In other words, what Paul is saying is we didn't live up to the life that God designed for us to live. We have not accurately reflected his image. That we were designed to look like God in love, in goodness, in justice, in patience, in faithfulness, in truthfulness. And we have fallen short of all of those characteristics. So then our predicament is this, we are not fulfilling our purpose to reflect who God is to the rest of the world, and we're not living inside our purpose in a relationship with God. The result, Paul says, is we are dead. You, me, everybody you've ever met, this is their condition apart from Christ. Now, he obviously doesn't mean physical death, the people he write are writing to in Ephesians, just like us, are walking around and breathing and eating and interacting and going to work and have families. He doesn't mean that they are physically dead. He means they are spiritually dead. Or another way that we could understand spiritual death is we are operating outside of the way that we were designed to live. And we're living outside of our designed purpose. So relationally, Remember, all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, we were designed by God to function in a relationship with Him. So the major problem of our trespasses is it's crossed the line of our relationship, and we are now separated relationally from God. And this separation, being without a relationship with God, is so far removed from what it means to be a human Created in the image of God, that it is like death. That our lives actually lack the vibrancy, the animation, the purpose, and the fulfillment that God designed us to live in. The point is that our relationship with God is actually what makes us truly alive, living human beings. It is the breath in our lungs. And part of being a fully alive human is then being spiritually alive. And this spiritual life or vitality is only possible when we are in a right relationship with God. And so we see this spiritual deadness relationally. We also see it in our purpose. Remember, again, we were created to reflect God to the world around us. And when we are not reflecting his love and his beauty, his truth, his goodness, his patience, his faithfulness, when we sin or fall short of those things, then we are not living the way that we were designed to live. And that is, Paul is saying, spiritual death. Or maybe another way to understand it would be just the word brokenness. That we are broken in our purpose and we are broken in our relationship with God. And this brokenness is no small issue in our lives. It's not a minor fix. It's not something that requires a week of antibiotics or a Z Pack and you're gonna be right back to work. Instead, this brokenness is devastating. It is a spiritual death, not the kind of death that we recognize when we go to a funeral but a death that is below the surface. Like when we say to someone, I feel dead on the inside. What what do you mean? You don't mean I have a cancer diagnosis. What you mean is that I don't feel alive. I'm not operating like I know I'm supposed to be operating. I'm not experiencing the vitality of life. Uh, An example would be, um, some of you guys remember this lot over here used to have a bunch of trees on it. You guys remember that? Until uh, Mike decided to go all Lorax on that place, (laughs) cut all the trees down. But one of the reasons we did that wasn't noticeable at first. So we had a tree company come out here, look at several of the trees, recommend we take them all down. And the reason is because... Several of those huge oak trees that looked very much alive were actually dead. And we didn't know or couldn't notice until we cut them down. One of the biggest ones had a hole running through it this big around, all the way up. That is a picture of what Paul is describing here of our lives. We look very much at times vibrant and alive, but there was a hole running through the very middle of us that we were actually spiritually dead. And the spiritual deadness means that we are unresponsive to God, that we can't respond to God like we were intended to respond to, that we are as responsive as a corpse. I don't know if you've ever been to a funeral And watch people slowly come up the visitation to see the dead body of their loved one. And often people will talk to them, right? Say how they miss them or say just a word about that person, kind of as closure. But you know what nobody expects? A response. And Paul's saying, man, that is our condition before God. Unable to respond to God how we were designed to respond. Then the next phrase in verse 2, he says that these trespasses and sins well, were things that we, in which we once walked. Or what he means is that's the pattern of our lives. That the pattern, the consistent pattern of our lives is one of spiritual death. That we experience symptoms because of the diagnosis. That every day of our lives is significantly affected because of crossing boundaries and missing the mark. And that it affects everything we do and everywhere that we go. It affects our relationship with others. It affects our work. It affects our emotions. It affects our families. It affects us all. We are all personally dead in our trespasses and sins. We are like dead men and women walking around. But the problem is even bigger than that. Even bigger than just the spiritual death in the middle of us, like one of those hollowed out oak trees. The next phrase, he says, following the course of this world. That this spiritual death permeates every nook and crown cranny of our society. That it's not just the course or pattern of our lives, but when a bunch of us who are all spiritually dead get together and start living life together, it is the course or the pattern of our societies. And we just follow along doing what everybody else does. It is a way of saying that spiritually dead people just mimic or follow other spiritually dead people. And the result is a world that is full of racism, materialism, oppression, greed, broken sexuality, and pride. And we are surrounded by that on every side. And it affects our governments, our school systems, our housing markets, our economy, our families, and our places of work. Everything in our world is twisted up in this spiritual death. And it gets worse. The next phrase following the course or following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This next phrase, he's talking about the influence of Satan. That there is a spiritual enemy opposed to the things of God who is actively at work in our world to deceive people. This doesn't mean that we're possessed by the devil like the exorcist and everybody's head is going to spin around. But when he uses this phrase, the spirit, what he means is the tone or the mood or the tenor of the age is one of deception. And so not only are we surrounded by other dead people living like dead people, but we are constantly being deceived into believing that that's not even true. We are not just surrounded by a bunch of broken people doing broken things in a broken society. We are being actively deceived, and that results in us not even noticing often that there's a problem. In other words, when we go to the doctor's office for the diagnosis... That if we listen to the doctor of the enemy of God, Satan, that he's just like, everything is good. You're fine. Just keep doing what you've been doing. Don't worry. A little more money, you're going to be fine. Figure things out. Just get the divorce. Find a different wife. You're going to be fine. Just maybe try going to church. You're going to be fine. Actively deceiving. And it gets worse. Verse three, among whom we all, all of us, no one is exempt, once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. The worst part of the problem is not just sin is happening around us. It is happening inside of us. It is in our own hearts that we have passions or desires or wants that are misplaced, Now, here he's not talking about normal human desires like the need for food, water, sex, sleep, natural bodily desires. What he's talking about is our appetites out of control. Lust, gut, gluttony, sloth, pride. And that we have misplaced wrongful desires. We're full of false ambition and malice and vengeance. And that comes from within us, not from without us. So here's the diagnosis, is the sin and trespasses, the spiritual death is pervasive, that we can't escape its influence, that it's in the broken world around us, it's in the broken spiritual world above us, and it's in the broken hearts inside of us. And he says, all of this results in that last phrase, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Because of that, we all, he says, stand condemned. Now, we get very nervous about phrases in the Bible like wrath. Often we get nervous because we think of God's wrath in the same way that we would think of a person's wrath. So we often think of someone exploding with anger or somebody flying off the handle or somebody pouring out vengeance upon someone else. It's associated with people who lack self-control or who are narcissistic, so self-consumed that they don't care what they do to other people. But that is not the picture of wrath that the Bible paints at all. In fact, the Bible is very clear. God does not, has not, and never will fly off the handle. God is not consumed by anger. God does not unfairly or unjustly seek revenge. He does not get even, so to speak. Instead, when the Bible speaks of God's wrath, it speaks of it as his just judgment on sin. That God patiently waits, giving people every opportunity to avoid punishment for sin. But because God is holy and righteous, he will rightly punish people. Now, this is good news. Because that means corruption in our government will be set right. It's good news. Because it means that the people on Delk Road who are actively trying to traffic other human beings will be judged. But it's bad news because it has to do with us too. Because we are spiritually dead as well. God then is not an abusive father who enraged slaps around his kids and refuses to feed them dinner. Instead, he is more like a patient and kind father who finally has to say to his rebellious, repeat offender, son, I'm not bailing you out of jail this time. This is the end of the road. You're going to have to face the consequences for your actions on your own. And the point then is that you and me and all the rest of mankind are condemned. Not an emotional condemnation from God. Not heaping on of abusive words or gaslighting or trying to control through guilt and shame. But instead a legal condemnation before a just judge. We stand before God guilty. And this is a devastating diagnosis. It's personal. We're all personally dead in our sins. It is universal. Everybody's in the same boat. It's pervasive. We're surrounded by it on every side. It's condemning. It has a price. And our sins and trespasses has separated us from our purpose of living lives of goodness and love and grace and mercy and faithfulness and truthfulness. And it has separated us relationally from God. And we can't escape it. Or another way we could say it is that our diagnosis is so devastating that we are hopeless to cure it ourselves. There are no home remedies, there's no combination of essential oils, there's no secret workout regimens, there's no magic supplements, there's no experimental treatment programs. We are dead. And we need a cure then that comes from outside of us, outside of our broken world and our broken society, apart from the broken people around us a cure that's free from the deception of Satan and a cure that is outside of our dead hearts with its own broken desires. So where do we get this sort of cure? Number two, that's the cure. Verse four, but God. The cure for our condition originates with God himself. These are perhaps the most beautiful words in all of the scripture. We are dead in our sins, but God. We are surrounded by brokenness on every side, but God, we are easily spiritually deceived, but God, our hearts are broken, not functioning the way they're intended to function, but God, this is the good news. That when we were powerless to do anything about our spiritual condition, God acted. When we were unable to respond to God like a corpse is unresponsive at the front of the funeral home, God responded for us. God was not satisfied leaving us in spiritual death. He acted, he did something about it. Why would he do that? It's the very next phrase. Because God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he has loved us. Because God's rich in mercy. Mercy is when we don't get what we deserve. What do we deserve? Paul says we deserve condemnation like everybody else. But God is wealthy, rich, and giving people what they don't deserve. God's not paycheck to paycheck with his mercy. God loves to help the helpless, which is great news. Because what? We have a devastating diagnosis that says that we are hopeless and helpless to find a cure. But God, and then this God, because of his great love. Now, love is doing what is best for another, even if it costs you. Love is rooted in self-sacrifice, doing the, what's good for someone else. And God, in his love, is set his will to do good to us, to do good to you, even when we don't deserve it. Or we could say it this way, God loved us even when we were unable to love him. We didn't love him. We'd rejected him. We're unresponsive to him. Again, this is not just a little bit of love. This is great love. Maximize love. I want you to hear this today. No matter if you're a believer in Jesus or not, I want you to know God did not walk out on you. No matter what's gone on in your life, no matter if you reflect and look at your sins and trespasses, God did not walk out on you. God walked toward you. So what did he do to help? Verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. This is how God acts. That even when we didn't deserve it, even when we didn't earn it, even when we were spiritually dead and unresponsive, God worked to make us alive. That the work of God is to make our spiritually dead hearts start to beat again. God did not give us a routine to practice. God did not give us a new morality to live by. God did not give us a religion to embrace a new system of government or a new political party to address what's wrong with our society God went to the heart of the problem said here's what you need most of all it's not a new system or not new rules what you need is a new heart so let me make you alive and here's the key phrase he says alive what together with Christ how does God make us alive through Jesus Now let's rewind again. What's our intended design? Remember, we were created in God's image that we would reflect God. We fall short of that, but guess who doesn't? Jesus. So Jesus came and lived a perfect life. Jesus did not miss the mark like we do, which means he did not sin, but he perfectly reflected God's character. When you read the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John of Jesus's life, what are you blown away by? His love, his goodness, his justice, his patience, his forgiveness, his faithfulness, his truthfulness. All of those accurately reflecting God's character. And remember, we were created for a relationship with God. That we'd function in a relationship with God. We fell short of that by trespasses. We crossed the relational line. But who didn't? Jesus So Jesus came and lived a perfect relationship with God. He didn't cross a line. He didn't break a boundary. His entire life, he was spiritually alive because he lived in perfect fellowship or relationship with God. And then remember our predicament. Paul says we stood condemned. Not only are we broken and spiritually dead, but we deserved it. We have missed the mark, we have crossed the line, and God's going to rightly judge us for our sin. But, but Jesus, Jesus not only lived a perfect life, but he died on the cross. And his death on the cross was a substitutionary death. Meaning that when Jesus died on the cross, he took our sins and trespasses upon himself, and he paid the full penalty for them by himself. Or we could say it this way, Jesus faced the condemnation that we deserve for us in our place so that we wouldn't have to be condemned, that we could be free from God's just judgment. So God made us alive together with Christ. Also in this passage, he uses the phrase in Christ. We talked about this several times throughout the Ephesians. I want to say it again so you get it. What he means is we so deeply identified with Jesus that is what is true of Jesus becomes true of us. Here is the way. This is the Christian message that we would identify with Jesus so that what's true of Jesus would become true of us. That his perfect life is counted as our life image-bearing life, that his relationship with God is counted as our relationship with God. Last last chapter, adopted into God's family as sons and daughters. Why? Because we earned it or deserved it, or we did some cool stuff. We made straight A's, five gold stars. No, because Jesus, that his real spiritual life would be given to us, which is why in verse 6 he says, and he raised us up with him. That Jesus' physical resurrection for the dead actually accomplished for us a spiritual resurrection from the dead. That our dead hearts are raised to be spiritually alive because of Jesus. And then he says, we have a future in heaven that is guaranteed that he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. That Jesus' reality right now, seated next to, the, to God in heaven, is our future. Why? Why would a God do all of this for us? Verse 7. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You want to know why? So that starting today and extending all the way into eternity, that God would over and over and over again show us how much he loves us by giving us an unending supply of kindness and grace. In other words, God rescued you from spiritual death so that he could over and over and over again treat you exactly like he treats his son Jesus. So the only question left is then how do I get in on this? Right? How do I get this sort of spiritual life? How do I get restored to my actual purpose? How do I avoid condemnation that I deserve? How do I come alive? Because Brandon, I feel dead on the inside. Two repeated phrases happen in this passage. It says in verse five, by grace you have been saved. Verse eight, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Christians use this shorthand phrase that I'll admit has been misused, overused, abused, but it is important, saved. No doubt, when I use that word, some of you think of a country preacher with a thick country accent, right? But this word is important. It means that we can be saved or rescued from condemnation. But even more than that, it means that we can be saved or rescued from spiritual death to spiritual life. This salvation, he says, is by grace, Now, grace is when we get more than we deserve. This is what God does. It is meant that this salvation comes as a gift. I love gifts. Uh, Christmas is my favorite holiday. It's so much fun. I wish I could tell you that I get jazzed about Christmas because of Jesus' birth, and I do. Man, I really like the gifts too. It's a lot of fun. But could you imagine... If instead of gifts next year in the Nichols house, like we normally give freely to our kids, we're like, all right, June 1st, we're starting a new program. For the next six months, you got to earn your gifts. And so we're going to keep track of everything that you've done right and everything that you've done wrong. Grades are going to be counted. Eye rolls, strike. Every single thing. And these gifts are going to be given to you based on you earning them. Does that sound like a Christmas that you want to celebrate? That sounds terrible. So here Paul says, that's not what salvation is like at all. It is not brownie points earning your way to this rescue or this salvation. It is given out of God's free kindness. It is a gift. It is not to be earned. That means it's to be received. Well, how do we receive it? Next phrase, through faith, which just means you believe it or you trust in it. That faith is for the Christian like opening the gift. So God's saying, here's the gift, spiritual life, vibrancy a return to your purpose, a restoration of our relationship. Here's the gift, freedom from condemnation. Here's the gift. It's already paid for by Jesus's death and resurrection. I am giving it to you. And then faith is just going, thank you, Jesus, and taking. it. Spurgeon says that faith is when we lean with all your weight upon Christ. We say there's no other cure for me. There's no antibiotic, no surgery, no amount of church attendance, no religious practices, no amount of money, no amount of status, nothing else. I'm leaning my entire weight on Jesus and Jesus alone to save me. That's faith. And then, verse ten, there's a recovery. It's a recovery. That's number three. Recovery. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. It's not just a miracle cure, but God works for your recovery. Now, remember, all the way back at the beginning, created in God's image to know him and be in relationship with him. So what did Paul just say? That when we come to faith in Christ, receive the gift of a new spiritual life, what we get returned to is being, again, God's workmanship, hand recrafted this time recreated this time, to be who God designed us to be. This time, though, this time, though, we have Jesus's image bearing for us in our place. We have Jesus's relationship with God for us in our place. And the Christian life becomes a life of constantly being recreated, doing the good works that God intended for you at the beginning, precisely because you have been saved by grace through faith. It's an amazing picture, right? So today, Christian, the call is for you to remember why you were saved. Why? You were saved so that verse seven, God could pour out his kindness and love to you through Christ. Do you get the magnitude of that? Christian, you came in here today. Let me just tell you, God is not sitting in heaven waiting for you to screw up so that he can send you to your room. God saved you not to condemn you. God saved you so that from today all the way in eternity, he could show you over and over and over again his love and kindness to you. So that when you walk through suffering, do you know what that is? As hard as it is to figure out sometime, it is God recreating you in the image of Christ so that he could show you, hey, I love you. This is my kindness to you. When you and I fall into sin, we can return to God in confidence. Why? Because God saved you so that he could pour out his kindness on you. This is a radical change in the way many of us live. God is for you. Years ago, I had a, a guy who got on a weird kick, who told a whole group of us that there was no such thing as unconditional love after the cross. Here's what he meant god would save you out of his love but after that he was going to require a lot out of you don't get me wrong the christian life comes with great costs oh, but that's really dumb because ephesians chapter two says no 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 god saved you so he could continually over and over and over and over and over and over and over, and over again give you mercy grace and his kindness And that he has a bank account that never runs dry. Also, Christian, we need to remember that we were restored to our purpose. That we're not saved for fire insurance. We're not saved so it's our get out of hell free card. We were saved because God wants to return us to why he created us in the beginning to be recreated slowly over time as his workmanship to look more and more and more like Jesus, to increasingly be good, increasingly be loving, increasingly be merciful, increasingly be kind, increasingly be gracious, increasingly be faithful, increasingly be true, increasingly look like Jesus, and that we would be actively engaged in good works, spreading that around, our interactions with people, The way we go about our business, the way we lead our families, would look like recreated people. That's why you're here. So for us as believers, we don't forget Ephesians chapter 2. It has reoriented our entire lives. And then maybe some of us today aren't yet believers in Jesus. We haven't trusted Christ and I want to summarize this passage for you today because I think this is three radical claims that the Bible makes consistently that you won't find anywhere else. And they are increasing in the radicalness from one to three. So if you're not a believer, here's the first claim that the Bible makes about you, that you were created in the very image of God. With intrinsic worth and value. Do you know how radical that is? Everybody around you following the course of this world tells you what? That your value comes from what you can produce, who you can become, embracing the right uh, uh, identity, following your heart to the fullness, finding personal autonomy, da 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 da. We live in one of the most performative societies that has ever existed constantly having to prove that you are worth something. But the third most radical claim I think that the Bible makes about you is you are worth something because you belong to God. That he created you in his image with intrinsic value and worth. The second radical claim is that because of our trespasses and sin, we've tarnished that image and that we are dead in our trespasses and sins and we can't save ourselves it's radical because everywhere you turn somebody's giving you a different way to save yourself a different secret to a new life this is the hardest thing that the bible has to say about any of us that we are incapable of making the sort of difference in our lives that we long to be made there is no cure in our world There is no cure in your heart. You can't watch enough Disney movies that encourage you just to follow your heart and your dreams, and you're not going to get there. It is devastating. And it's radical. But third is the most beautiful and radical thing that the Bible has to say, the most radical claim in existence. You don't have to do anything about it. Jesus did it for you in your place. The most radical concept in the Bible is grace. That God acted for you on your behalf to give you a gift that you don't deserve and all you have to do is accept it by faith. Anybody can get in on this. You can have restoration to purpose. You can have forgiveness for your sins. You can have a relationship with God. You can live the life that you were intended to live. You can have your eternity changed. And all you have to do is receive it. It is given to you freely by grace. It's the best news in the world. You're not going to find this any other place. You're going to find performance, achievement, You're going to find a long list of things you can do to make yourself feel better. And you're going to find it in a lot of different places, religions, systems, and worldviews. This is the only place where you find this. Most radical claim, the face of the planet. It could be yours. And all you have to do is receive it. So today, Christians, let's not forget. God stands ready to pour grace upon grace upon you ready to forgive you, redeem you over and over and over again. He recreated you for a purpose. And if you're not a believer today, the invitation is this, just come and receive the free gift of God given graciously by Him freely through Jesus, by trusting Jesus. Thanks for listening to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. To keep up with the life of Mercy Hill Church, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We believe the Christian life is best experienced in community. If you're in our area, we'd love for you to join us. If not, we'd love to help you get plugged into a local church near you. Have a great week.